Welcome to a history of violence. What do Dungeons and Dragons players have in common with inner city youth gangs? Reefer madness and bath salts. What links coffee shops with the mods and the rockers? How about the Joker and West Side Story? And what do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have in common with horror comics? They have all in some way been caught up in a moral panic. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Given the theme of the show, I'm going to focus on moral panics around violence, which are pretty prominent examples. But I want to give an honourable mention to the most amusing subset of moral panics, which are around sex, including the mass hysteria around supernatural penis theft and the belief that bicycles could cause lesbianism. So, what is a moral panic? There have been a few academic attempts to describe what a moral panic is. The most famous example can be found in sociologist Stanley Cohen's 1972 book Folk Devils and Moral Panics, although the term is borrowed from an earlier work by Marshall McLuhan. For Cohen, a moral panic is when a condition, episode, person or a group of persons emerges to become defined as a threat to societal values and interests. A crucial aspect of this is the fact that a moral panic is disproportionate. This comes through in Cohen's work, but it's especially emphasised by later scholars. Disproportionality is a tricky thing to measure, and it can be pretty subjective in some cases. What is disproportionate depends on what you see as being proportionate. And it also doesn't mean that the subject of the moral panic isn't real or isn't potentially fairly serious. For example, street gangs do exist and can be a serious problem. On the other hand, the British Board of Film Classification's banning of the word ninja in the 1980s and 90s is patently ridiculous. The thing they share, though, is that the media and political response to them is blown out of proportion in some way. In the case of gangs, there is also arguably a tendency to focus on a particular type of gang as a form of sublimated attack against an already maligned group. You can make a strong case that Urban gangs from Chicago and Baltimore are constructed as being a particular problem because they are black, which is a similar um, issue in the UK with county lines gangs. Historically, this role was filled by the gangs of New York or Glasgow, often as an implicit critique of Italian or Irish immigration. Less attention was paid at this time to, say, white gangsters. So, a moral panic doesn't require that the issue is non-existent or trivial, only that the reaction in the media and society is disproportionate or misfocused. Additionally, both serious and ridiculous subjects of moral panics arguably share a common process underlying them, even if the issues and the extremity of the problem are very different. Cohen sets out a process for moral panics. First, someone, something or a group are defined as a threat to social norms or community interests. Secondly, the threat is then depicted in a simple and recognisable symbol or form by the media. Then, the portrayal of this symbol rouses public concern. There is a response from authorities and policymakers, and then the moral panic over the issue results in social changes within the community. There is some debate about the historical causes of moral panics. How do they develop and how do the specific subjects emerge? Moral panics generally reflect a sort of underlying cultural tension, which in my opinion is almost always connected to economic change. 
For example, the growth of penny dreadfuls in horror comics in the first half of the 20th century has to be understood within the context of cheaper printing and a huge increase in literacy. The working class, young people and women were all able to read and afford cheap, escapist literature, meaning that the guardians of morality grew increasingly worried about the kind of media they were allowing these groups to consume, in a way which was simply inapplicable before. The panic over mods and rockers reflected the fact that post-war economic change allowed young people to develop independent subcultures, which were often threatening to the established political and social order. The satanic panic of the 1980s focused largely on preschools, reflecting the fact that women were increasingly entering the workplace, creating an anxiety about the reliability of childcare, which could be easily linked back to long-running religious worries. So, like the godless commie I am, I would say that economics is often at the root of these cultural anxieties. There are two groups that are especially important in this process, in addition to the folk devils themselves. The first is the mass media. While there are some examples of panic and mass hysteria going back to the ancient world, this kind of sustained and generalised moral panic that we're talking about here requires a fast-moving, widely available media ecosystem to survive. The primary medium has evolved from print journalism through cable news and now to the internet, but the point is that the media creates the environment in which the moral panic develops. The media chooses a target, constructs a narrative, and then communicates this to the wider audience, often then feeding on the outrage of that audience to drive long-running news cycles. Crucially, the profit motive is important here. Moral panics often make for great headlines and higher circulation and better viewing numbers. This is especially true of issues which can split society down the middle, demanding round after round of recrimination in media battles. To this extent, moral panics are pretty closely related to culture wars, in the sense that the media often stands to gain from polarising the public and stirring up controversy. The difference with culture wars is that they generally involve society being split fairly evenly, for example between liberals and conservatives on an issue like abortion or gay rights. Moral panics tend to involve a focus on a particular cultural subgroup or subsection, but this is really a matter of degree, especially in a highly polarised media ecosystem. The other important group in this story are moral entrepreneurs. These are the self-appointed crusaders who take it upon themselves to spread the word and defend society from whatever evil they claim to see. In his book, Cohen refers to editors, bishops, politicians and other right-thinking peoples. Although moral entrepreneurs need not be people in official positions of power. Indeed, moral entrepreneurs often benefit from presenting themselves as truth-telling outsiders willing to take on the feckless political establishment, such as the British censorship advocate Mary Whitehouse or Mothers Against Drunk Driving. This kind of middle-class busybody has been parodied in South Park and The Simpsons, with Helen Lovejoy's repeated refrain of, Won't someone think of the children? Such moral entrepreneurs often become lightning rods for controversy themselves, often to the detriment of their cause. On the one hand, concerned parents seem far more trustworthy than the obviously cynical politicians or newspaper editors. On the other hand, some would argue that these moral entrepreneurs simply use children as a way of pursuing their own often hysterical, misguided or prudish crusades. A good way to test how effective Cohen's depiction is is to see if it still stands up when we look at a modern example. He brought his book out in the 1970s and focused on the street fights between the mods and the rockers, but I think it works just as well when we look at the controversy around video games and violence. 
The idea of a link between video games and violence is probably the preeminent example of a moral panic in the modern world. Although in a sense it's actually a cyclical collection of moral panics dating back to the 1976 death race arcade game and continuing through to the current day. Frequently the focus is on a particular game, like Grand Theft Auto, Postal or Mortal Kombat. These are games which are notable for their high levels of violence, and there might be grounds for restricting the sale of these games to children as a matter of taste more than anything else. But it has to be said that the overwhelming academic and scientific consensus is that video games do not cause or contribute to violence in the general population. So let's see how we can work through the process which Cohen set out in applying it to video games. So firstly, someone, something or a group are defined as a threat to social norms or community interests. Video games were clearly constructed as a threat by the media and politicians on the grounds of causing violence, as well as sometimes their sexual explicitness and, nowadays, the potential for addiction. Despite there being no really well-proven medical effects, anecdotes were selected and elevated which showed a particular moral depravity to the actions of gamers or the content within the games themselves. Secondly, the threat is then depicted in a simple and recognisable symbol or form by the media. I think a really interesting aspect of the panic over video games is how the focus is often on gamers as a group. Not to get all gamers rise up about it, but the tendency has been to deem the consumers of what is now an almost universally enjoyed mass media as exclusively violent, maladjusted male loners. Here's a quote from Caroline Overton in The Australian, who said, Anyone over the age of 30 who spends any time deep in some sagging sofa, console in one hand, the other down the front of their pants, imagining themselves to be a combatant in some pretend city, is lame, and that gamers don't participate in life in any meaningful way. Of course, idiotic movements like Gamergate don't really help, and it is true that the most vocal subset of gamers are probably the worst possible representation. But games have always been a mass medium enjoyed widely by young people. Nowadays almost everyone under the age of 50 plays some kind of game, and the gender split is roughly 50-50. Even if you discount mobile and casual games, you're still talking about a big chunk of the population, the vast majority of whom are, for lack of a better word, normal. But nevertheless, the basement-dwelling loner or misogynistic teenage dipshit still features as a media bogeyman whenever a video game controversy swells up. The portrayal of this symbol rouses public concern. While the public is becoming less and less responsive, there have been pressure groups, politicians and activists building their careers on this, with significant and continuing public interest. I'll come back to this in a minute. 4. There is a response from authorities and policymakers. Policymakers have, at times, brought in legislation aimed at restricting the sale of video games, with the UK having a legally enforced age limit system. Even though anti-gaming crusades might seem a little bit 1990s, policymakers continue to grapple with these issues. As late as 2018, Donald Trump hosted an event on violent video games, while some US policymakers proposed attacks on mature rated games. Crucially, attacking video games often functions as a sort of proxy, a kind of way of not doing something about some other problem. For example, banning video games often comes up when there's some sort of mass shooting in the US, possibly because it's easier as a target than the gun lobby. 5. The moral panic over the issue results in social changes within the community. 
the policy changes discussed above probably qualify on this count, although I suppose as a big picture thing, this is where we might depart a little bit from Cohen. Basically, in the long run, video games are winning. They are more popular than ever and just as violent. So it's difficult to say that the moral panic has exactly tempered uh, the spread of video games. The media are of course major players in this, possibly because they sense that interactive digital media is inherently in competition with the top-down hierarchical news model provided by TV and print newspapers. One headline from the UK in 2011 claimed that gamers can't tell fantasy from reality, while an Australian paper ran with video games sending kids crazy in the same year. The tendency towards bold but unsubstantiated headlines is alive and well in the tabloid press, and probably chimes well with their ageing audience in the era of culture war populism that we're now in. Ultimately, I think at the root of this is that the media senses competition. This is true going back historically. Print newspapers looked down their noses at escapist literature, broadsheets looked down their nose at tabloids, newspapers looked down their nose at TV, and now TV looks down its nose at internet. So this plays into a long-running tradition. The video game and violence debate has also provided work for one of the great moral entrepreneurs of all time, Jack Thompson. He's a fantastical character, a sort of classic ambulance-chasing lawyer composite, eventually disbarred in Florida due to claims of harassment and intimidation after a long career of filing suits which were described as repetitive, frivolous and insulting to the integrity of the court. His career is based on suing people in a crusade against public obscenity of any kind, including radio shock jocks in the show South Park. But his most long-running and wide-ranging feud has been with the video games industry. Despite his lack of success as a lawyer, he managed to file lawsuits against the makers of dozens of games, essentially building a career out of this. He also had more success as an activist than as a lawyer, helping to advise politicians and draft legislation. His chaotic idiocy is almost endearing, although there is something quite unpleasant about him taking up cases in the name of murdered school children in the aftermath of a mass shooting, selling their parents a false hope for justice while filing unwinnable cases, presumably for some sort of profit. His crusade reached its most amusing peak with his so-called modest video game proposal. Thompson challenged video game makers to include a scenario in which the father of a murdered child went on a killing spree directed against the video games industry, to prove that they would be okay with having depictions of violence directed at themselves. If such a game was produced, he would pay $10,000 to a ta- charity chosen by Paul Eibler, the head of Take-Two Entertainment. People stepped up and made several indie games featuring the scenario Thompson described, although he reneged on the deal like the sort of con artist he is. Two comic book writers and game aficionados stepped up to cover the promised donation. So, video games provide a pretty clear example of a moral panic. Like all moral panics, they are amplified by a self-interested, commercially driven media, as well as cynical politicians and opportunistic activists. They take a real thing, but blow its effect way out of proportion, misrepresenting evidence and demonising groups. The worst thing about moral panics like this is that the is that they focus attention away from the real underlying issues. The roots of white male rage are not based in video games, but yet they often become the focal point following mass shootings. Video games have become the story after terror attacks, and have even been discussed in relation to war crimes. 
There might even be a grain of truth to some of these accusations, in the sense that the media we consume might help to normalise certain ideas, or might encourage people who already have violent fantasies to fall deeper into them. But ultimately, these events shouldn't devolve into a polarising, headline-grabbing debate about video games, which are at best very loosely connected, and which most likely represent a complete red herring. Anyway, uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, please like, share, subscribe, and give me any feedback that you feel like, unless it's, you know, really mean. Uh, bye.